The protective barrier, understanding traumatic brain injury from a biological, psychological, and social perspective. Traumatic brain injury recovery. As an internal medicine intern, I and other trainees evaluated a distraught artist suffering from shortness of breath and progressive walking problems. Noting a normal physical exam and a recent emotionally traumatic breakup with his lover, I quickly concluded that the symptoms were manifestations of a hysterical conversion reaction rather than caused by any physical problem. Well, what a shock I had the next morning as I walked into the hospital and observed a swarm of medical personnel rushing this poor man, barely able to breathe, to the intensive care unit to be placed on a ventilator. The diagnosis was polio. He was one of the few people who had not been vaccinated. The same year, I speculated that a man complaining of severe back pain and a stormy relationship with his son was symbolically expressing his disappointment, frustration, and anger with his son through the pain. That is, his son was metaphorically a pain in the back. Well, I changed my diagnosis, however, after seeing the bone spurs, probably pressing on nerves, in spinal imaging. These two cases are examples of a common pitfall to which we all fall prey at times. The wish to find clear-cut, simple, unambiguous answers to life's complex problems. At that time, I was so interested in the psychological factors and illness that I downplayed possible physical contributors. So it can be in the evaluation and treatment of brain injury, pressured by constraints of time, money, and other resources, we may eagerly narrow the focus to one particular issue to explain complicated behavior. For example, depending on the perspective of the evaluator, a brain injury survivor's irritability may be attributed to one of these factors. Frontal lobe bruising, neurotransmitter imbalance, inadequate sleep, poor nutrition, excessive or inadequate medication dose, relationship disappointments, lack of recreational and vocational outlets, loss of job, and so forth. Well, my point is that brain injury is best viewed from a biological, psychological, and social perspective. Injury occurs to a person with a particular physical status, particular life experiences and coping style, and particular current relationships with individuals and organizations. As a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, I deal with emotional, behavioral, and cognitive problems of brain injury survivors and their families. Emotional problems include depression, anxiety, fears, irritability, anger, shame, guilt, and so forth. Behavioral difficulties include temper outbursts, sleep problems, poor initiation, passive resistance, impulsivity, wandering, sexual inappropriateness, and so on. And cognitive problems include poor judgment, forgetfulness, poor attention span, trouble with multiple tasks, planning, and organizational difficulties. I find it helpful to view the nature and severity of problems resulting from brain injury as determined by a protective barrier, as discussed by neuropsychologist Thomas Kay, Ph.D. This barrier is comprised of biological, psychological, and social factors. And it is the individual differences in the components of the protective barrier that explain why similar neurological insults produce inconsistent outcomes. Various biological factors influence outcome in brain injury. For example, the status of brain structures and functions, previous brain injuries, age, 
prescription medication effects, both benefits and side effects, illicit drug and alcohol use, seizures, fluid collections inside the head, metabolic or hormone imbalance, and infection inside or outside the central nervous system. When considering psychological factors, I try to keep in mind the following. It's not only what happens to us, but how we interpret it and how we respond to it. Our psychological vulnerability to brain injury relates to past experiences and development as well as current psychological resources. We evaluate the present in terms of our internal psychological conflicts, relationships, and goals. Brain injury and the varying degrees of dependency, loss of control, and incapacity lead to regression, that is, revival of earlier, more childlike ways of thinking, feeling, and relating to others. These are often more primitive and less reality-oriented. When healthy, we're aware of these regressive attitudes, but they are reactivated and intensified under the stress of brain injury. The regression caused by the brain injury reactivates certain universal fears, as described by consultation liaison psychiatrists James Strain, M.D., and Stanley Grossman, M.D., and these fears are similar to those that we experienced earlier stages in our development. The ability to adapt to current worries and stresses depends on how adequately we adapted to these stresses when we experienced them as a child. The predominant fears, internal conflicts, and their degree of resolution depends on our early life experiences. For example, the nature of our relationships with parents and other caretakers. Brain injury is always followed by loss of self-esteem and unpleasant feelings. For example, depression, anxiety, guilt, shame, helplessness, and powerlessness. Well, those of us who as children were not neglected, hurt, or exposed to extreme emotional or physical traumas, and whose relationship with parents was built on trust, are less likely to be affected by the fears, losses, and painful feelings of their current disability. For example, a good early childhood relationship with mother allows us to have basic trust in our caregivers. A good early relationship with father leads to our ability to trust men, allow ourselves to be passive in relationships with men, for example, comply with recommendations of male health care providers, caretakers, and to respond to authority without fears of being weak. Following is a list of the universal fears reactivated by a brain injury-induced regression. First is the threat to the integrity of the self. Integrity of the self refers to a basic sense of well-being, bodily integrity, and strength, all of which are shaken by a brain injury. 25-year-old John denied the seriousness of his seizures and the existence of post-injury thinking or judgment problems. He boasted of his verbal abilities and intentions to capitalize on his attractive physical appearance by becoming a male model. At the same time, he avoided social or academic contact with peers, instead preferring solitary exercise activities. The brain injury-related threat to his self-integrity added to a prior sense of deep inadequacy resulting in a defensive, grandiose attitude. The emotional pain of directly acknowledging and dealing with his deficits was intolerable, so John tenaciously clung to a defensive, hyperinflated self-image, which he could only maintain by remaining socially isolated. The next fear is the fear of separation. This is especially common in people with visible, permanent, severe disabilities, and the fear is of being rejected and abandoned by spouse, children, friends, and other family. 
Often, this fear becomes a reality, resulting in despair at the loss of these important relationships. In addition, earlier life experiences of emotional and physical abandonment are reactivated. Let's talk about Sarah. Her slow, slurred speech and paralyzed right arm and leg suffered in a stroke and traumatic brain injury left Sarah in a dependent, incapacitated, and vulnerable position. This reactivated terror, rage, and despair stemming from Sarah's childhood emotional neglect and abandonment by her mother while her father sexually molested her. The revived feelings resulted in Sarah's angry, desperate clinging to hospital staff as well as to a deep mistrust of and fear of injury by some of her caretakers. The next fear is the fear of loss of love and approval. Jack was despondent over his incapacities. His brain injury left him unable to financially support his wife and children, satisfy his wife sexually, and relate patiently to his children. The strong sense of shame and despair Jack currently felt was rooted in his early life failure to win approval from parents who unrealistically expected him as a young child to assume care for his younger sister. The next is a fear of loss of control of developmentally achieved functions. This includes loss of control of the bowel, bladder, feelings and thoughts resulting from a brain injury. The amount of distress over loss of control of these abilities depends on childhood experiences surrounding achievement and loss of control of these functions. For example, Alan was mortified at the frequent tearful outbursts that followed his brain injury. He recalled being shamed by a first grade teacher for wetting his pants in class and chastised as a child by his parents for any expression of intense emotions. The next fear is the fear of loss of or injury to body parts. Fears of permanent disabilities may resonate with early childhood fears of injury to or loss of body parts viewed as punishment and retaliation for desiring an exclusive sexualized relationship with one parent and associated wishes to get rid of the other parent. An injured man may unconsciously view his disability as a symbolic castration, feminization, and subsequent vulnerability to attack by other men. Let's talk about Bill. To cope with a passive, weakened state which threatened his masculinity, construction worker Bill flirted with women caretakers and boasted to his children about how bravely he endured painful diagnostic procedures. The next fear is the feelings of guilt and shame and fear of retaliation for previous transgressions. Many people view their disabilities as punishment for previous sins of omission or commission. For example, being too needy, too greedy, neglectful, disobedient, or hurtful to parents as a child. Jean believed that her accident and injuries were divine retribution for the ingratitude and rage she felt as a child toward her parents who she experienced as neglectful and depriving. Tom viewed his head and spine injuries as punishment for an accident he had caused 10 years previously. While drunk, Tom drove his car broadside into a police car, injuring the officers. Now let's talk about personality style. Personality style can be defined as our habitual mode of relating to both our own wishes and fears and to other people. Personality style is an important psychological contributor to how we interpret and react to the deficits of brain injury. For example, passive dependency was Tim's personality style prior to injury. He strove to find both individuals and organizations who could meet his financial, physical, and emotional needs with minimal expenditure of effort on his part. 
injury-related deficits, and a large financial settlement served to legitimize and reinforce those behaviors. Tim delighted in attention from his caregivers, but opposed their attempts to help him assume more responsibility. Unable to care for her children after a brain injury, Jane felt depressed, ashamed, and helpless. As the oldest of six children, Jane had been placed in the role of caretaker and surrogate mother from an early age. In order to cope with the frustration and disappointment of unmet dependency needs, Jane developed a pseudo-independent personality style, becoming a caregiver and a rescuer to many people in her life. But the brain injury-related deficits interfered with her playing the caretaker role, and the financial gain and attention she received from compassionate rehab staff served as a major, though unconscious, obstacle to rapid recovery. Ed was a logical, orderly, well-organized engineer with a compulsive, or too-perfect, personality style. Post-injury anxiety about his cognitive deficits led to a compulsive preoccupation with and charting of the frequency and character of his bowel movements. This was Ed's attempt to feel more in control of his life. If he couldn't control his thinking, which had been impaired in the injury, he would turn his attention toward another bodily function that would be more easily mastered. Other personality styles that influence one's response to brain injury include histrionic, being overly dramatic, or borderline, meaning emotional instability and stormy relationships, or narcissistic meaning basic low self-worth hidden by an inflated sense of self-importance. Now let's move on to social factors or interpersonal factors. Understanding the interplay of biological and psychological factors within a person is helpful but incomplete. Since a person exists not in a vacuum but in a social network, our lives are interconnected with family, friends, co-workers, as well as work, school, social and religious organizations. The degree and nature of these connections influence the outcome after brain injury. One unconscious motivation of Dorothy's multiple post-injury emotional setbacks and physical setbacks was that Dorothy was only allowed to see her favorite sister when Dorothy was hospitalized, since Dorothy's husband had forbidden the sister to see her at any other time. Bill, a brain-injured Army veteran, managed to emotionally decompensate and be rehospitalized just often enough to qualify for his Veterans Administration disability benefits. Mike was isolated, suspicious, and argumentative prior to his brain injury, estranged from his ex-wife, children, and his parents. His injury-related deficits served only to magnify his pre-morbid suspiciousness and to widen the rift between him and his family. Thanks to a generous financial settlement and extreme family dedication and commitment, Frank received a comprehensive home-based rehabilitation program, which resulted in dramatically improved cognitive, emotional, and behavioral functioning. It also helps us to keep in mind that the family's response to a brain-injured member depends on the nature of the relationship prior to the brain injury and the special psychological meanings to the family of the survivor's deficits and the family's coping style. For example, Susan's husband was a devoted caretaker, bearing with little protest the emotional and physical strain of her brain injury-related disabilities. Her husband's unwavering involvement seemed to be based on his guilt about Susan being struck by a car in the past after she had angrily left their car during a heated argument. David's wife had always been quick to act as a caregiver. 
in part as a reaction to her own unmet dependency needs in childhood. David's disabilities led to his wife's self-sacrificing over-involvement with him. The increased caretaking efforts served to unconsciously defend more vigorously against her own unmet needs, which she was unable to admit to herself and others for fear of disapproval and rejection. Pam's mother found herself emotionally reserved and irritated with Pam's incapacities and neediness. Her mother had been raised in a religious school where demonstration of strong emotional needs was explicitly discouraged. Therefore, she could not tolerate feelings of neediness and dependency in either herself or her children. Bill's children cope with their fears of Bill's injury-related rage outbursts by unconsciously identifying with this behavior and reacting to his impending outbursts with verbal attacks and provocations of their own. While their preemptive assaults helped his children cope with a terrifying situation, it also intensified Bill's sense of inadequacy as a husband and a father, and therefore Bill's subsequent rage. So, to understand and treat brain injury-related disabilities effectively, it really helps us to look at the components of the protective barrier that stand between the force of the impact and the brain. As one author stated, it's not only the kind of injury that matters, but the kind of head.